Hi, this is Debbie Taylor-Williams. Thank you for tuning in to my podcast. I'm so glad you're here and pray the Lord will speak to you through this message. It is key to our study this morning, and it is in Acts 23.11. In Acts 23.11, Jesus affirms Paul must continue his solemn witness. I want you to pay attention to those words, solemn witness. These were words given him by the Holy Spirit. We read in Acts 23, 11, but on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, take courage for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause, at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. Our focus today, as we go through these chapters, we want to answer the question, what was Paul's solemn witness that the Holy Spirit had given him that Jesus thought it important enough to come from heaven? And we don't talk a lot about Jesus is coming from heaven and standing Beside Paul, we can just kind of read over those verses, but it says Jesus stood at his side, not a voice spoke from heaven, not a vision, not a bright light in the sky. It says he stood by his side. Paul is standing there talking to Jesus, or I should say Jesus is standing there talking to Paul. What an incredible experience for Paul. But he says, I want you to continue your solemn witness. So what was it? That's the question we want to answer. What was the solemn witness that was so important that Jesus had to come from heaven to speak and to affirm to Paul that he wanted him to keep doing it and he wanted him to keep doing it all the way to Rome? These chapters are so exciting. This solemn witness that he gives him, we know that they are the words of Jesus because in Matthew 10, 19, Jesus had prepared his disciples for when he left and he said, when they hand you over, do not worry how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. Verse 20, for it is not you who speaks, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. So the words that we're going to hear Paul speaking were actually the words, yes, of the Holy Spirit through him, the Spirit of Jesus, because he said, I will give them to you. He said the Holy Spirit would give them to you. And he said that they were the words of the Father. So it's exciting that we get to have Luke's recording of what these solemn witness words were. Let me go ahead and just give you an overview of where we're going to go today. We're going to see that Paul's solemn witness is found in 23, 6, 24, 15, and 24, 21. One of the solemn witnesses that he is going to repeat is the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead, wicked and righteous. So Paul is going to emphasize that. Paul is also going to give a solemn witness that there is a way. And we know this verse very clearly, that Jesus spoke of himself as being the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. And therefore, the Christians were called the way. But Paul is going to emphasize the way of salvation. And then in 24, 25 through 7, Paul is going to give solemn witness as to righteousness, self-control, 
and the coming judgment. Now, did any of you, when you read those words, self-control, think, well, how did this just pop up in here? These words, self-control. Why, why this topic? We'll be looking at why that topic is so important and wedged right in between righteousness and the coming judgment. If there was any words that could have come out of his mouth, wouldn't you have thought it would have been righteousness, love, and the coming judgment? Righteousness, peace, and the coming judgment? No, no, no. So we need to find out why he spoke of self-control in this passage, but we don't want to miss these other important points. The importance of a good conscience. Paul repeats the good conscience twice in 23, 1 through 5, and in 24, 16. We don't want to miss this, the imminency of Christ's return. And why might we want to think about the imminency of Christ's return in 2311? Because just as Jesus, boom, appeared and stood right before Paul, there was no preparation. It was Jesus. One day, Jesus is going to return in the air, and we're going to be right there looking at him, or one day, we're going to be dead in Jesus' presence. We're going to be in Jesus' presence before the judgment seat. So there is, no, there is no preparation to be done to meet Jesus except for what we have right now. And so Jesus said, you have solemnly witnessed. And so we're getting, we're getting the solemn witness of the importance of all these things. And the third thing that we hear about is the immutable providence of God. And if you did not see the providence of God in this passage, and I know you did, uh, it would be remarkable because it's so glaringly obvious, the providence of God. So let's get started reading in 23, beginning uh, in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 5. Paul, looking intently at the council, so he's eyeballing them. He's not just, hey guys, he's looking at them. He's looking at some of his friends that he trained with under Gamaliel. He's looking at some of these people that he knows. Some he doesn't know. He's been gone 20 years. He's been gone 20 years, so some of them he doesn't know. But he is speaking to them as brother to brother because they have been brethren who have studied together, who have been Jews together. And some of them he was probably very, very close to. Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Let's stop right there. Did any of you think, well, Paul, how can you say that? You murdered people. Did any of you think that? besides me. I thought, how can you say that? But here we have to understand that there are both intentional sins that are addressed in the Bible and unintentional sins. And Paul thought that he was doing the right thing. He thought he was being zealous for God when he persecuted believers in his, those initial days. He thought he was doing the right thing until Christ confronted him and told him differently. So Paul is speaking very honestly, and we're going to look at this, and we find here the importance of a good conscience. The definition of conscience in the Greek 
It is the soul, which is our essence, that is not dissolved by death. It's the part of us that keeps going on. It is the soul distinguishing between what is morally good and morally bad. Conscience is what prompts us to do the good, not the bad. So Paul is saying, I have had a lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And when you study it in the Greek, he is saying, I have lived my life with the highest degree of conscientiousness. That's what Paul's saying. I have lived my life with the highest degree of conscientiousness. He had wanted to be a good Jew. He had wanted to follow the law. And we also see here, however, how he was responded, or the response he got. And two, the high priest Ananias commanded those standing there to strike him on the mouth. And this word strike in the Greek, it is a, the, a word that means to keep striking him. And he said he commanded those. So it wasn't like one person hit him in the mouth or slapped him. It means it went on and there were more than one. Then Paul commanded, I'm sorry, he commanded him. And Paul said to him in verse 3, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was a high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. What we are doing and why I'm slowing down on these verses, they're just rich. They're rich for us with material for us to understand. These sins that we commit, as some say, oh, well, Paul just lost his temper. He sinned. Paul lost his temper. I don't think Paul sinned. I don't think Paul lost his temper. Why? Because in Matthew 23, let me look at this verse, 23, 27, Jesus had a many words, including you whitewashed wall. Let me read this real quickly to you. He is uh, exposing the Pharisees for who they are. And he said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. Self-indulgence is a sin? Hmm. You blind guides, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. These words, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you say to judge me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? You know what? That doesn't sound like a Paul who's sinning. That sounds to me like Jesus. That sounds to me like Jesus. But at the same time, in order to have a perfectly good conscience, we see Paul's response. I was not aware, brethren, that he was a high priest. Now, some think that this could have been due to Paul's poor eyesight. 
He often refers to his thorn in the flesh and see with what big hands I'm signing this letter. So it could have been to Paul's eyesight. It could have been because the priest, had he would not have had on the adornment that he wore when he went into the Holy of Holies. He may not have realized that Ananias had been uh, placed as high priest. But regardless, he apologizes in order to keep that perfectly good conscience. And so we are too. We see this, you're fill in the blank. Sin, intentional or unintentional, is to be confessed so our conscience is cleansed and we are right with God and with others. The second thing that we see is this topic of anger because it appears that Paul is angry. We know that Jesus was angry. We know that at times, we know that God at times has anger. And so I want us just to focus on this. And I know we're not going to have time to get through every single one of these verses. But you and I may become angry at injustices in our land. We may become angry at the sexualization of children that is so wrong. We may become angry when an, an innocent person uses a gun to protect their family and then they're the ones that end up getting put in prison. No doubt Dietrich Bonhoeffer was angry at what Hitler was doing with all the Jews and that's why he was eventually killed for standing up for his faith. So what do you and I do as Christians in, at this time, in this era, and as things get progressively worse, as the time of Christ reappearing near? Is it a sin for you and me to get angry? Not if our anger is aligned with the anger of God. God's anger is rooted in divine justice. We saw that in Matthew 23, 27, in Mark 3, 5, in Romans 1, 18. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Did you hear that? The wrath of God. Are against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them, and then he goes on explaining. So there is a righteous anger. Now, human anger can be volatile and out of control, we know, and is not right. So this is the balance we have in Ephesians. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And we see Paul exemplifying this by him apologizing even if it was true words that he spoke. Paul's solemn witness is about the resurrection of the dead. And you see how he stirred up the council because half were Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. And he said, I am on trial for the resurrection. I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. That is the dividing issue. It is still the dividing issue in our day. We believe in the hope and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that we are going to follow. Unbelievers do not. They refuse that. So our second point is all will be resurrected. Unbelievers to a judgment of their works and eternal fire and believers to a judgment. We, yes, we will stand before Christ and be judged. What will we be judged for? We will be judged for rewards. We'll talk more about that in just a second. We see in here the imminency of Christ's return, and I've already shared that with you. But the reason that he tells Paul 
that he can be of good cheer as he assures him that he is going to make it to Rome, that that is God's plan. And this word, take courage, it actually means be of good cheer. That's what it means in the Greek. Be of good cheer. You can be of good cheer. You're not going to be dying here in Jerusalem. You're not going to be dying in Caesarea. You're not going to. No, you're going to Rome. And he said those words. We can also know that the return of Christ is reason for you and me to be of good cheer and to take courage as we walk through our challenging days. Jesus promised it. The angels affirmed it. This one you see going up, he will return in the same way. And Jesus repeatedly says at Revelation 3.11, I am coming quickly, hold fast of what you have. Revelation 22.7, and behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Revelation 22, 20, who to testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. What does that word mean quickly? It doesn't mean in numbers of days or months. What it means is once the end times and the last days and the events that when God in heaven, who alone knows the day of Christ, that Christ will return, when it starts, it's going to start happening very, very, very fast. And we are already seeing an escalating decline in moral goodness in our nation, aren't we? We've seen the fastest decline that any of us have ever seen. And if you've been paying any attention to the news, people are saying, we have never been at a place like this. We have never been at a place like this. We see the immutable providence of God and how we can rest in the providence of God who loves us. In Numbers 23, 19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said it and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not make good of it? And so, yes, God makes good of it. And I think it's absolutely amazing as we see beginning in verse 12 of chapter 23, how the Jews formed a conspiracy, 40 of them, to kill Paul, and they said they wouldn't eat or drink until they saw Paul dead. But we see the, in the providence of God, beginning verse, verse 16, the son of Paul's sister, Paul's nephew, heard of their ambush, and he entered the barracks and told Paul, and now Paul is calling the shots. God's calling the shots. Paul calls the centurion to him, and, and Paul's telling the centurion, come here. And the centurion comes to him, and he says, this is what the deal is. This young boy knows of a plot against to kill me. I want you, centurion, to take my nephew to the commander. Now go. <laughs> I just love it. I just love it. God is calling the shots through Paul. I mean, it's absolutely amazing to look at this providence of God. And the commander did, the centurion did, the commander did. And now Paul is being escorted at dark, after dark by 470 Romans, 470 Romans with Paul mounted on one of the horses. Do you know how many people are in the Sanhedrin? 70. 70 is a significant number in the scripture. Paul, those 70 men, those 70 people want to get you. I'm just going to trot you out of here, mounted on a horse, surrounded by 470 soldiers, Roman soldiers. I told you you're going to Rome. 
And if I say it, it's happening. This is a lot better way to leave Jerusalem than the last time he left Jerusalem over the wall in a basket, <laughs> don't you think? It's absolutely amazing. And I think that one of the amazing things about heaven will be when we get there and we find out all the ways that God and his providence worked things for us that we didn't even realize. And we'll be like, oh, now I see why you had me move. Now I see why you had me take that job. Now I see the value of that financial strain or even perhaps an illness, whatever it may be. The providence of God is absolutely amazing. Paul also solemnly witnesses to the way and and we see how he does this. We're going to go ahead and skip to chapter 24 where he is standing before Felix and he is having an opportunity to make his defense when the high priest Ananias came along with his attorney and they had all these trumped up charges against him that were not true. Have you ever known of a situation, perhaps even in our nation, where there were some trumped up charges? And Paul is saying, show me the proof. Where are the people? And he says, I was in Jerusalem five days. I took alms. I, for the poor, I purified myself before I went. I didn't desecrate it in any way. And he's like, there is no proof here. But he is still being charged. And even he's going to remain in jail for another three years eventually. But he was innocent. He was innocent. And so we need to be prepared. We may be innocent in some upcoming days. But, and we may be falsely charged. But Paul did say this. He said in verse 14, But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that's written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. He is not backing down. He says, Jesus is the way, the truth and the life, and no one goes to the Father but through Jesus, as Jesus himself said. And there is a warning. Proverbs 14, 12 gives us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And we have a lot of this going on when people say, well, I think as long as somebody is a good person, I think as long as somebody is trying their best, I think there are lots of ways to heaven. And that's not what the author and the creator say. Paul solemn witnessed on self-control and righteousness. What's this all about? Our sixth point from 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. One of my favorite verses. It's a divine exchange and it's, a, it's an amazing thing. In verse 16, Paul says, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and men. He has just spoken of the resurrection of the dead, the righteous and the unrighteous. Paul knows that rewards are going to be given at, in heaven. And he wants to be blameless. He wants to be used of God in every possible way. This self-control and righteousness, our seventh point, 
is that we are to learn God's ways and practice them through the power of the Holy Spirit, giving sway, or you can say giving way, whichever word you want to put in there, to him and his righteousness instead of our natural bent. Galatians 5.23 lists self-control as one of the fruit of the Spirit, along with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Self-control is among those. Ladies, I believe one of the greatest things that you and I could do that would have people's heads turning would be if we started exercising self-control in our lives. Self-control in alignment with the scriptures, be it temper, gossip, what we eat, what we drink, what we say, what we do. We are to be aligning ourselves with this word. We are to be being increasingly like Jesus. I want to read to you, and I, I read and referenced it some last week, but I want to again. The common de denominator of success is forming the habit of doing what failures don't like to do. So there are people who have self-control, and there are people who don't have self-control. Successful people are influenced by the desire for pleasing results. I want to be like Christ. I want to model him to others. The less successful are influenced by the desire for pleasing activities. I want to do what I want to do. I want to eat, drink, say, buy, spend my money. I want to do what I want to do. Every day, each of us begins again with the job of controlling and distinguishing between our emotions and our reason. Our ability to wage this war, this never-ending conflict between reason and emotions will determine in large measure the degree of our achievement. It will determine how effective we become at the work we choose, how well we get along with our associates, our friends, and the members of our families, and what our rewards, may I add, will be in heaven or not be in heaven because they've been burned because we lived for this world instead of we live for the kingdom. Reason versus emotion. Eternally pleasing results versus temporal pleasing earthly activities. Interesting, isn't it? And it's a way to choose between what we feel like doing and what we know we should be doing. This is what we know we should be doing. Self-control is very important, very important to God, because the more Christ-like we are, the more filled with His Spirit, the more knowledgeable of His Word, the more valuable we are to His kingdom. Our eighth point is we are without excuse and will individually stand before Christ and be judged for our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our intentions, our secrets, the stewardship of our gifts, the use of our time, and our reverential fear and conformity to Christ. All of those areas in which we will be judged I deeply, intensely researched when I was preparing to teach the five-week end-time study that I taught last summer. It's on my website, End Times, what you should know, what you should do. And I was shocked as I kept looking and studying and researching what the scripture says we will be judged for and rewarded for. You as a Christian, 
are not going to be judged to be condemned. Jesus has already taken our condemnation, your condemnation for any sin. This is a beautiful judgment seat. It is an award program where in heaven, Christ will be giving out the rewards for what you did for the kingdom, for who you brought into the kingdom, for what you gave to the kingdom, all of these different areas. And the things of our lives that we that wish we hadn't done, that we wish we hadn't said, that perhaps we spent too much time or money or investment or energy on, he'll make sure that those are burned away. We won't enter heaven with the weight of any of that guilt. We will enter heaven with joy and with hope and with excitement and with celebration and, and with the angels singing and the music and the rejoicing. So, as we conclude looking at this, Acts 17.31, I think, sums it up as something that Paul had already given solemn witness to. He said, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men, to people, all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This is the Easter Sunday message. This is the Easter, this is the resurrection message that you and I live by every day. So let's apply our study, can we? First, how's your conscience? Is there anything or anyone you need to confess to be right with God or someone else? Because conscience is an important topic and if we're wanting to align ourselves in conformity with the Lord, then this is an important point that we can't miss. Second, are you ready for Jesus' appearing? Are there some things that you want to do, you want to serve somebody, you want to talk to and make sure they're going to be in heaven? Are there some things that the Lord has put on your heart to do, to give, to be? Three, are you taking courage, confident in the providence of God as you see world events happening? Take courage. Are you taking that courage? Confident in the providence of God. Four, are you inviting people to the way of eternal life in Jesus and warning them that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death? And five, are you practicing self-control through the power of the Holy Spirit? So you are an increasingly righteous reflection of Jesus. What do you need to solemnly witness to about the resurrection of the dead, the way of salvation, or righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment? Those are all what we can witness to solemnly, even as Paul did. Did you think Acts 23, 24 were important? Very important. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To learn more about how to grow in Christ or to be saved, visit www.debbietaylorwilliams.com. Connect with me on Instagram at Debbie Taylor Williams. God bless you.